how to see and share Jesus from all of Scripture, well, learn with us at the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. Welcome to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Hebrews. On today's podcast, we'll be listening to the sermon, How Fear Leads to Rest. This sermon on Hebrews chapter 4 was preached by Josh Redberg. Beginning next week, we'll take a short break from Hebrews and talk about Advent, specifically how the women Matthew includes in the genealogy of Jesus provide a fascinating glimpse of God's grace. Now let's join Josh as he preaches on Hebrews chapter 4. Please open your Bible with me today to today's scripture reading. Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. And he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter the rest, that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Thank you, Alicia. Approximately 35 million mattresses are sold in the United States each year. I have not been able to verify it, but my research shows that almost half of them are sold in Fuquay Varina. <laughs> we love our mattresses here. So a couple weeks ago, my family stayed in a hotel room, all five of us in the same room. As you can imagine, not everyone slept well. We hadn't even gotten out of bed yet when Carrie said, I can't wait to sleep in my own bed tonight. Why is it that we don't appreciate sleep until it gets hard to do? When you're a kid, naps are wielded as a weapon of punishment. Like, if you don't obey, you're going to have to take a nap. Most adults view naps not as a punishment, but as a reward. Like threatening an adult with a nap would be like threatening them with a donut. Like, yes, please, I'll take that punishment. You know, the harder it gets to sleep, the more we long to do it. So kids who can sleep for 10 hours straight don't appreciate it. But those of us who have to get up multiple times every night to use the bathroom or can get an injury while we're sleeping... To us, sleep becomes a treasure. It's rare, but when we discover it, it's worth celebrating. We need rest. 
When we're able to rest, we forget how important it is. But when we're unable to rest, everything begins to crumble. When we can't rest at night, the next day seems to be a couple hours longer than normal. When we can't rest, it's not just that our bodies are affected by a headache or bloodshot eyes. It's everything. Our minds start to spin and don't seem to be able to shut down. We're easily irritated. We struggle with motivation. We were made to rest. And when rest is elusive, we don't function well. Our passage this morning is about rest. Someone came up to me after the first service and said, isn't it ironic that on daylight savings time, our passage is about rest? We once preached on fasting on Super Bowl Sunday, and now on this day, we're preaching about rest. God has a sense of humor. But this rest our passage is about is not a good night's sleep or an afternoon nap. It's about the rest we long for, the rest we were created for. It's about rest from pain and suffering, rest from anger and frustration, rest from evil and wickedness. It's about the rest we hope for when we take the trip of a lifetime, but we don't quite achieve. Do you long for rest? Rest from trials and troubles. Rest for your body and soul. There is hope for the weary and worn out. There is hope for the discouraged and distressed. God has prepared a place of rest for his people. The God who created all things has designed a place of rest for those who have become part of his family through faith in Jesus Christ. Now this passage so filled with hope flows from the previous passage about the danger of unbelief. Notice it begins in chapter 4, verse 1, with the word therefore. It connects it to what came before. There was a generation of Israelites in the past that forfeited God's rest because of their rebellion, their disobedience, ultimately their unbelief. But the promise of rest still stands. And it's available to us. So to assure us of the grace of God in Christ, the author of Hebrews, he first turns our attention to a promise of rest. He mentions it in the very first verse of chapter 4. Look at verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should have seemed to fail to reach it. So the promise of rest is available to us. But notice it's not our rest. It's God's rest. God conceived of it, God designed it, and God created it. It comes from the very mind of God for the benefit of man. It must be for our benefit. Certainly the God who created all things, who never grows tired or weary, does not need a place for him to rest. But God knows our weakness and our weariness, and in his grace he prepared a place of rest for us. Now, since it is God's rest, it can be difficult for us to understand what it will be like. Our conception of rest is certainly incomplete, and it's often distorted. I want you to see three pictures of rest in this passage. I think they help us better understand what it means to enter and enjoy God's rest. The first picture of rest is the Garden of Eden. This is alluded to in verse 4. Look at verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. After God created the universe and all that was in it, he rested from his creative work. But what happened next? 
God came down each day to visit the man and the woman and walk with them in his perfect creation. In the cool of the day, God appeared to walk and talk with Adam and Eve. The defining characteristic of man's time in the garden was God's presence. It it wasn't the lack of sin and suffering, the absence of toil and thorns, but the presence of God. All of the wonderful things in the garden were the result of God's presence with his people. Life in the garden was life in the presence of God. Now after Adam and Eve sinned and were cast from the garden, they no longer walked in God's presence. God's presence now had to be mediated through a priest in a place of worship. They could not stroll with God in the cool afternoon breezes. But the story of the Bible is the story of mankind's return to life in the garden through the work on the cross. God will once again dwell with his people. God's people will be in God's place, enjoying God's blessings forever. No longer will we need to go through a mediator. For God himself will dwell with us. Have you ever visited someone's house, walked in for the first time and thought, yeah, this is what I expected? People's homes often reflect their personalities. Not, Not always. Sometimes we're surprised, but often they do. Well, God's rest reflects God's nature. Because he dwells with his people, it will be a place of perfection and beauty. It will be stunning and marvelous. Flaming sunsets and brilliant rainbows. Chirping robins and galloping horses. Children singing and old men laughing. These are all just a faint whisper from the soundtrack of future rest. Now the second picture of rest is the promised land. Now, this has been the dominant picture throughout this entire section on unbelief that started in chapter 3 and now continues in chapter 4. So the wilderness generation of Israelites left Egypt to journey to the promised land, a land that God had prepared for them to inhabit and enjoy. Throughout this passage, the author quotes from Psalm 95, which looks back to those years of Israel's wandering in the wilderness, making their way to the land that God had prepared for them. This was the land, verse 6 tells us, that they failed to enter. But this land was supposed to be a land of peace and prosperity. When Moses told the people about the land before they got there, he said it would be a place where they would find, quote, rest from all your enemies around so that you can live in safety. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 10. When they got to the edge of the wilderness, the spies entered the land to see what it was like. And when they came back, they brought back clusters of grape so large that two of them had to carry it. And they said, they described the land as a land which flows with milk and honey. When our lives are filled with danger, we don't rest. When others are attacking us or criticizing us, we don't rest. When we don't When we wonder if we don't have enough money to pay the bills, we don't rest. When we aren't sure where our next meal is coming from, we don't rest. We long for both peace and prosperity, and we know that until we get them both, we won't rest. So if the people of God had entered his good land and obeyed him, he had promised to bring them peace and prosperity, and they could enjoy their time of rest. But they didn't obey him. At least not for long. If you remember the first generation, we talked about this last week, the first generation disobeyed him 
before they even entered. They turned from him in unbelief, and so they were unable to enter the rest. The following generations would fluctuate between belief and unbelief. So while they believed, they would have these moments of peace and prosperity, but then they would, they would fall or drift into unbelief. And so this good land intended to provide rest never really gave them the place of rest. But it was never supposed to be the ultimate place of rest. Look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Joshua led them into the promised land and, and gave them these moments of rest, but the rest they had was not final. It was not complete. It's interesting that the name Joshua in the Greek language is the exact same name as Jesus. So Joshua and the rest he achieved for the people of God was intended to be a type or a picture of Jesus and the rest that he would bring his people in the future. He would bring his people from slavery. And just as Joshua brought his people into a land of rest, Jesus would bring them into a land of rest, a heavenly Jerusalem. And there we would forever and fully enjoy peace and prosperity. So true rest, the rest we long for, the rest we need, includes God's presence like the Garden of Eden, and peace and prosperity like the promised land. But there is a third picture, and the third picture of rest is the Sabbath celebration. Look at verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now the Sabbath day in the Old Testament mirrored the seventh day of creation where God rested. God did not have to rest from his work because he was winded, but because we need a day to stop working and to celebrate who God is and what God has done. His resting was a pattern, was intended to be a pattern for our resting. If God can rest and the world won't fall apart, then certainly we can manage to rest without our world falling apart. Is that what you think will happen if you rest? Do you think your life will crumble if you slow down for just a minute? That the Sabbath commemorated God's rest, but not simply by prohibiting work. It did it with a celebration. So we shouldn't just picture the Sabbath rest as a Sunday afternoon nap. We should picture it as a wedding feast with, with dancing and laughter. The Sabbath was intended to be a celebration. We feast and we make merry because of what God has done. We remember the goodness and grace of God in creating all of these wonderful things and the fact he commands us to stop and enjoy them for a day. We praise God with a party. That's what the Sabbath was intended to be. So don't think of a future Sabbath and picture angel babies napping on clouds. Picture a feast with singing and dancing where we laugh so hard our eyes begin to water and we gasp for breath. A celebration so fun and fulfilling that we forget all about ourselves and just enjoy the time with those we're with. Do you remember the accusation that was leveled at Jesus when he was on earth? This is what people said. He eats and drinks too much. 
Matthew 11, verse 19, they called him a glutton and a drunkard. Now, those accusations were false, but they were made for a reason. Being with Jesus in his presence under his protective eye was a cause for celebration. When he sat down to eat and drink with you, your heart became so full of joy, it felt like it would break out of your chest. Jesus not only told stories that ended with feasts and celebrations, he told stories at feasts and celebrations. You see, the promise of rest is not only a promise of God's presence, a promise of peace and prosperity, but it is a promise of celebration. Think about the moments in your life where you experience the greatest sense of fulfillment, the deepest feeling of belonging, the most intimate conversation, the purest laughter. Those were just waves of rest lapping at the shore. For those who believe there is a vast ocean of rest, deeper, purer, and more beautiful than anything we can imagine. You see, God's rest for us is still to come. Verse 9 So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It is a city yet to be seen, a homeland yet to be reached, a country yet to be entered. But verse 3 tells us we have started the process of entering God's rest. The ticket is in hand, and at times when the fog lifts, we can see the distant shoreline. You know, knowing that a future rest awaits us, should motivate us to live differently. The scent of our future home should linger on us. Though we have not yet reached the land of rest, right now we can rest in the care of Christ. We can work hard, but not let our work define us. Since a land of prosperity awaits, we we don't feel the need to accumulate or hoard more stuff. We can be generous in every way with our time, with our money, with our speech, because we know we will walk with God in a garden more glorious than money can buy. Now, we should not be lazy. That's not the rest it's talking about. We're called to diligence. We've been called to diligence throughout this book of Hebrews. But we can marry a diligent hand with a restful soul. Because we know that the reward for our labor is not a title or a promotion. But the smile of our Father who will one day bring us home to live with Him forever. Brothers and sisters, I want you to consider two questions. How does God's promise of future rest shape your days? How does God's promise that a future rest awaits us, how does it shape your days? And how do your days testify to God's promise of future rest? In other words, for those who are watching and observing your life, how, does, how do your days testify to God's promise of future rest? you do need to notice that this promise of future rest is conditional. Only those who hear the good news and believe will enter. Those who do not believe are unable to enter. Look at verse 2. For good news came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not 
benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. Entrance to God's rest requires faith. You have to hear the good news that God invites you to himself through the saving work of Jesus Christ and then place your confidence in him alone in order to enter the rest. Friends, twice this is called the good news. Verse 2 and again in verse 6. What better news could there be? At the end of our long journey, God has prepared a place of rest for us and we do not have to earn entrance. We cannot purchase a ticket. In order to enter, we must place our confidence in Jesus Christ instead of ourselves. Like, that's it. This is such good news. And since this is such good news, we need to share this news with others. All around you are weary and worn out people. Your friends and relatives... Your neighbors and coworkers, they are longing for rest. Tell them what Jesus has done. Let them know that God himself, the creator of the universe, who made and fashioned them, throws open his arms and invites them to enter his rest. What keeps people from God's rest is unbelief. The good news brings you no benefit if you refuse to believe it. This promise of rest is only for those who place their hope and confidence in Jesus Christ and his saving work. So the passage focuses on the command of rest, but I want you to also see that there is a command to fear. Not just a promise of rest, but a command to fear. Now this passage has two commands, but they're tied really tightly together. The first command is found in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, here it is, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now the second command is found in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We are commanded to fear and we are commanded to strive or to act. Obeying the first command leads to the second command. Now, when you read a command of fear, it may strike you as odd, but it's not uncommon in Scripture. Throughout the Bible, we are commanded to fear God, and the writer to Hebrews echoes this consistent biblical teaching. In, verse t- in chapter 10, he tells us it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in chapter 12, he tells us that Moses was terrified in God's presence. We misunderstand fear when we narrow it to a simple emotion. If we think of fear only as a strong sensation of terror, then we will not understand why we're commanded to fear. But fear has two important parts. The first is an accurate assessment of your condition. An accurate assessment of your condition. Fear is helpful when it's a response to a dangerous situation. So parents, one of your jobs is to train your children to learn appropriate fear. So if you see a copperhead in the yard, don't pet it. If, if the ball bounces into the street, don't go running after it. Don't touch a hot stove. Don't open your door while the car is moving. Don't tie a towel around your neck pretending it's a cape and jump off the roof. Like These are the things we teach and train them. Fear is part of training a child to assess 
their situation and notice the danger they could be in. Appropriate fear is God's built-in warning system to protect us from danger. There's a genetic disorder a few hundred people have which makes them incapable of feeling fear. That may seem great. But if you read about it, you find out it actually is quite dangerous because these people will find themselves in dangerous situations that you and I would have avoided because we would have feared them. But there's a second part of fear, and it's the motivation to act. So you, you accurately assess your situation, you realize there's danger, and fear motivates you to do something about it. A number of years ago, I was out for a run and decided to, to take a different route. And I turned a corner, I was running down a street when I got close to a certain house and a dog came running at me, barking. And so I stopped running, and I looked at the dog, I pointed at him, he yelled, no! And he stopped. I'm a dog whisperer. <laughs> and then he took another step and barked again, and I yelled, no! And I took a step back, and he stopped. And we had this sort of weird standoff where he would take a step and bark, and I would yell no, and I would take a step back until I felt there was enough distance where I turned and I sprinted the other direction. This was partway through my run. I don't like to run. I didn't have much energy left, but I ran faster than I had run in a long time the other direction. I don't normally fear dogs. I like dogs. But this seemed like a dangerous situation. I assessed it very quickly, and I did something about it. I turned and I sprinted the other direction. It was fear that motivated me to act. Notice the fear to command, or the command to fear in verse 1 leads to the command to strive in verse 11. So when we assess our condition accurately that we are sinners who easily and often rebel against God, we should fear lest our hearts lead us away from him and his rest. And this fear motivates us to strive to enter. We're commanded to fear so that we'll act. Fear is unhelpful when it paralyzes us. And sometimes fear can do that. We get so scared, we don't do anything. And that's why the second command is here. Fear is not the end goal. Fear is the motivating force. We fear so that we'll act. Fear is also unhelpful when we fear the wrong thing. The Israelites, they feared the giants in the land. They feared dying hungry in the wilderness instead of fearing God. God is not, listen to this, God is not telling you to fear everything and to live in anxiety. He's telling you to see, recognize, assess the grave danger of unbelief. He's telling you to fear his wrath on sin. He's telling you to fear turning away from his rest. He's telling you to accurately assess your condition and be motivated to act upon it. So we are commanded to fear, but the command to fear is really a command to act. If you do not believe, start to believe. If you are turning away, don't turn away. If you're trusting yourself, stop trusting yourself. If your confidence is not in Christ, place your confidence in him. Strive to enter his rest. So let the fear of God and his judgment on sin motivate you to pursue Jesus with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The final two verses in this passage provide a warning about judgment. A warning about judgment. Look at verse 12. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Verse 12 is a well-known verse that speaks about the power of God's word. But within its context, this verse warns us about the judgment that will come on those who will not listen to God and believe his promise. These final two verses actually tie together a number of threads from the first four chapters, especially the importance of responding to God's revelation in Jesus Christ. If you remember chapter 1, the first few verses, Jesus is God's final word to us about his nature and plan. And if we refuse to listen to Jesus, if we resist in unbelief, then we will face his judgment. The word of God, like God himself, is alive and effective. It can pierce your very soul. It can expose the deepest part of your heart, the part you want to keep hidden. It can reveal whether you truly believe the good news or whether you're pretending. Earlier this week, one of my sons lost something. This isn't unusual. This is the life of a parent looking for lost things. So he lost something upstairs in the loft, and he couldn't find it, so we were helping him look. And so we started pulling everything apart to find it. So I, I, I took the sectional, and I started pulling cushions off, and I, I'm not old school I actually have an iPhone, and so I, I, I turned on the flashlight on my phone, and I, I just started rooting through all of the cracks and crevices trying to find this thing which was lost. I didn't find it, but I found a lot of stuff that's not supposed to be in a furniture. <laughs> God's Word will search every crack and crevice of your life. Everything that is not supposed to be there will be brought to light. Even your intentions, things you have not yet acted upon, your unfulfilled fantasies are exposed to God. And if you do not believe, if your hope and confidence are not in Christ, if you have not been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, God's word will expose it. Verse 12. And once exposed by the word of God, God himself will judge your sin, verse 13. Nothing and no one is hidden from his sight. All will stand to give an account before him, which means you will stand and you will give an account to him. And there's nothing you can hide behind. Do you see those two words? Naked and exposed. Those are lonely. Those are scary words. If you stand before God, when you stand before God on Judgment Day, no excuse, no justification, no argument will protect you. Only Jesus Christ and His righteousness can shield you on the Day of Judgment. Right now, right this very minute, the Word of God is coming to judge your heart. What will the judgment be? God loves to perform open heart surgery. He loves nothing more than to take a cold, dead, unbelieving heart and replace it with a new, beating, living, believing heart. And he'll do it. He'll do it for you right this moment if you ask him. 
Here's our hope and here's our confidence that if the word of God judges our heart today and we listen and respond, then we can stand before God with confidence on judgment day. When I was young, hotels regularly had two neon words at the bottom of their signs. And they would light up if the hotel was out of rooms. And those two words were no vacancies. Since at that point, hotel rooms couldn't be reserved on the internet, travelers would often drive into town and they would look at the hotels to see if there was a room available. And at the end of a long day, it was disheartening to see the words no vacancies. A number of years ago, I had to catch an early flight to attend a convention. And so I was up hours before the sun and spent the entire day walking through this convention, meeting with people. By the time I got to the hotel room, I was sharing with a coworker. I was exhausted. All I wanted to do was sleep. But the problem was that he fell asleep first. And once he fell asleep, I could not fall asleep. The noises he made while sleeping would have made an airplane jealous. I was so exhausted, but I could not rest. I would have done anything to sleep. I would have gladly paid double or triple for my own hotel room. The only problem was that the hotel had no empty rooms. There were no vacancies. The sign hanging above God's rest does not say no vacancies. There is room for you if you come today. Verse 1 says, the promise of his rest still stands. Verse 6 says, it remains for some to enter it. The invitation is open. You don't have to miss out. Jesus invites you, no matter how weary or worn out you are, to come to him for rest. At the end of your journey, a place of rest awaits a room prepared for you in your father's house. Listen to Jesus' invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Have you come to Jesus? The rest you long for can only be found in him. Thank you for listening to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or texts you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com and please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources.